0: Thank you, Josh and Natalie. You guys are precious to us. Thank you for that beautiful way of leading us in prayer, too. Let's open our Bibles and continue in worship as we read one verse today, and we're going to, of course, look at it within its context, but we're continuing through our series in Ephesians, and we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. Please worship God with me as we approach this word. Let's say, speak, Lord, for your servants, are listening, hear God's word from Ephesians 4, verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he is to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. This is the word of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Tim Keller was giving a sermon on this passage, and he told the old, lame joke, when does a door stop being a door? You probably know the answer, when it's ajar. And it's a corny joke. But I want to ask you a real question this morning that's not a joke. When does a thief stop being a thief? We obviously haven't eradicated thievery from our culture. A few Christmases ago, Kate's aunt from Arizona sent us four Christmas cards, uh, one for Kate and myself and the other for our three adult children, and in the cards for our three adult children were sizable gift cards, generous gift cards, And, and her aunt had the receipt back in Arizona to prove that she purchased these gift cards, but they never made it to our house. The card for us with a check in it made it, but the cards with the gift cards didn't. And we learn from the post office that people will follow behind the mail delivery, especially in those dark late afternoons of December, and pilfer through people's mailboxes trying to feel for cards that have generous gift cards from relatives in them. Maybe you've seen footage from California on the evening news. People walking out of stores with stolen goods fearless of the consequences, and voters from that state approved Proposition 47 back in 2014, and since then, there's been this massive increase in petty theft and property crimes. The intent of Proposition 47 was to free up law enforcement to be able to focus on prosecuting violent and serious offenders. So it downgraded certain crimes from felonies to misdemeanors. And now in California, you can get away with stealing, shoplifting, grand theft, receiving stolen property, forgery fraud, and writing bad checks with only a misdemeanor as long as the stolen property is under $950. And residents say, rarely are these crimes, these misdemeanors prosecuted. One condo president association in San Francisco said, every bicycle in our building has been stolen. I've caught so many people stealing packages. They don't care. They know nothing will happen to them. So lawmakers are trying to write new laws that will offset the spike in crime. But of course, it takes more than laws to eradicate stealing. Long ago, from Mount Sinai, God gave his Ten Commandments to Moses that are teaching us how to love God and how to love our neighbor. And in the Eighth Commandment, God defines his will in this regard. What does the Eighth Commandment say? You shall not steal. And that's not open to misinterpretation. It doesn't matter if it's less than $950. The implications of the law are profound And the Apostle Paul is reaffirming the Eighth Commandment here in Ephesians 4.28 when he says, let the thief no longer steal. We could read those words and we could think, yep, that's exactly what those people in California need. They need more law and order. And that may be true, but it's not true enough. You remember how David Willen opened our series in this section from Ephesians a few weeks ago. He he told this story about how the London Times did an article on what's wrong with the world. And the Christian G.K. Chesterton wrote back this one-line response. He said, Dear Sir, regarding your article, What's Wrong with the World, I am yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. Now, there's a much more profound analysis of human nature. And we don't usually think that way. Kevin DeYoung says that when it comes to the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal, most of us initially approach this commandment by thinking, yes, finally, I get some breathing room. Most of us feel pretty good about ourselves when it comes to this commandment. The Barna Group did a survey some years ago where 86% of adults claimed that they had completely satisfied God's requirement of abstinence from stealing. Most of us are glad that a commandment like this is in the Bible because we want those thieves and robbers out there to be held accountable for their crimes. But we don't think that the commandment threatens any of us. It's for, the, the, it's for our protection against the bad guys is what we tend to think. But I ask you again, when does a thief stop being a thief? Is it when a person simply avoids those crimes that are prosecutable by the law? Or does God's law maybe go a little deeper than that? Does it go under the surface and get to our hearts? Could it be that more than 14% of us In this room, are guilty of violating God's command not to steal. Do you really think that 86% of our congregation has completely satisfied God's requirement of abstinence from stealing? I don't think that 86% of our pastoral staff has completely satisfied God's requirement. Of abstinence from stealing. We're all guilty. We have been a part of what's wrong with the world. And the Apostle Paul is writing to these Christians in Ephesus. They're at the crossroads of commerce in the Roman Empire. They're living in a culture where things like theft and fraud are commonplace. But these are people who have started to learn Christ. They are hearing the truth as it is in Jesus, we read back in verses 20 and 21. And the first principle of truth we learn when we come to Jesus is that there is an old self that needs to be put off. You see that in verse 22? Take off your former way of life, the old self. It's like when I come home from a run on a really hot and humid day. And I am just covered in sweat and filth. I don't dare go walking around the house and try to hug Kate dressed like that. In fact, she'd rather that I just go straight down the stairwell to the laundry room because I've got some things that I need to take off and put on before I can live comfortably in our house. That's what Jesus is teaching us about our old self. He says in verse 22... That it is being corrupted by deceitful desires. That's true for all of us. You and I are battling against a depraved nature, against corrupt desires that come from deceit, from lies. So how do we change? Well, the answer is in verse 24. We need to put on the new self. And Patrick showed us how that's through our union with Christ. And it's vital to understand how this happens. You can't just turn over a new leaf. You can't just say, okay, I know that things like lying and uncontrolled anger and stealing are bad, so I'm going to stop lying and I'm going to stop having road rage and I'm not going to steal any longer. That's just behavior modification. But it's not going to deal with these fermenting, corrupting desires that are inside our hearts. What God's word is calling us to is a transformation that requires a radical work of the grace of God in our lives. It starts with verse 23. If you look at it, it says there that we need to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. We need to be made new. We need to be given a new heart. A new attitude. This is so radical that Jesus said, You must be born again. That's what we need. We need the Holy Spirit of God to create new life in us, to give us a new nature, new birth. And this is is exactly what the new self of verse 24 is it's a new creation from God. Look at what it says put on the new self the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of truth. Just like God created this beautiful world by when there was nothing and he said, let there be light and it came into being, We need God to do that same thing in our hearts. We need him to come into these corrupted hearts that have deceitful desires. And he needs to say, let the the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ shine into that heart and give him a new heart. Make him a new creation. And isn't that exactly what Ephesians 2 says happened to us when we were saved by grace through faith? We were made a new creation. And so what I want to do this morning Is I want us to read verse 28 through the lens of the gospel. I want you to read verse 28 and feel like, actually, this is gonna require a miracle in my heart from God in order to really obey it. I can't do this on my own. I need the cleansing that the blood of Jesus provides, I need the new birth that only the Holy Spirit can give, I need the Father to make me a new creation so that I can be like him in true righteousness and holiness. I want us to leave here soaked in the gospel and fragrant with the aroma of the gospel on our lives. So as you look at this command in verse 28, notice that there are actually three commands in this verse. And, And John Piper helped me to see that it's moving from an inferior to a superior way of life. The inferior way of life is that you can take from others to have whatever you want. Second, you can work hard to get what you want. And then third, there's a way of life where you can work hard in order to give generously to others. And the main thing I want us to take home this morning is that only the gospel can produce that superior way of life. We need God to work in us in order to obey verse 28. So first... A negative command. What does it say? Steal no longer. So here's this group of Christians in Ephesus at this commerce trade center. They're living in a culture where this is commonplace, but they're learning Christ. And one of the things that Jesus teaches is that all the evil practices that we do, you see this in Mark chapter 7, where do they come from? They come from the heart. Jesus said, out of the heart comes theft. Theft is one of the toxic, polluted weeds that comes from a heart that has deceitful desires. It's taking what belongs to others and using it as your own. You see, human beings, we've been created In the image of God. And one of the unique aspects of being created in the image of God is that we are created to own things, to possess things, that we will cultivate and develop. This is what it means to be taking dominion over creation like God commanded us. So when we steal from one another, what are we doing? We are robbing one another of our dignity, We are dehumanizing people when we steal. We are depersonalizing people. That's why when you get robbed, you don't just feel mad, you feel violated. Stealing shows a complete lack of respect for the dignity of another human person. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, it makes fellowship impossible because without trust, there can be no fellowship. So stealing includes all these things that are obvious, like shoplifting, embezzlement, robbery, pickpocketing, going into your mom and dad's purse or wallet and taking out a $5 bill that you didn't have permission to take. But stealing can go beyond the theft of money. It can also include the theft of ideas, like taking another person's words and repeating them as if they were your own without giving credit to that person. Or stealing can include robbing time. If you're paid to work a certain number of hours for your employer and instead you spend that time surfing the internet or painting your nails, what are you doing? You're stealing. And if you're an employer and you have people working hard for you and you don't pay them a livable wage, what are you doing? You're stealing from those who work from you. When high-powered business owners take advantage of loopholes to file bankruptcies. They may think they're being shrewd businessmen, but they're really being greedy thieves because there's always someone lower down the rung on the ladder who's not getting paid while the wealthy tycoon walks away scot-free and goes on to get wealthier. Just think about all the theft that was going on during the 2000s. When, when mortgages were being written for people that the mortgage person knew couldn't afford to pay for it, and then appraisers would come along and appraise houses at values that were way too high, and then a lot of people would lie on their income reporting to make it look like they had more income than they had so that they could get mortgages they couldn't, be, couldn't afford to repay. And, and what was the result of all that? In 2008, the bubble burst. And lots of people lost property and lost money, and some lost their lives during that great recession, all because of lying, greed, and theft. If you're not honest in reporting your earnings on your tax filings, what are you doing? You're stealing from the government. And you're stealing from your neighbor because you're not contributing your fair share to goods and services provided by the government for the common good. When you owe someone for services or goods that they've provided, and you don't pay them what you owe them, you're stealing from that person. That includes when you eat at a restaurant or get a DoorDash order. And if you don't tip the person who's serving you who's bringing the food to your door. And and by the way, in 2021, a tip is more than 10%. If you don't do that, you're you're defrauding, you're, you're, you're squandering what belongs to someone else. What about when you fail to care for the needs of the poor, when it's in your power to do something for those who have need? What does the Bible say you're doing when that happens? It doesn't just say you're being stingy The Bible actually says you're robbing the poor of their due. And what about our duty to God? Who is God? He's the owner of all things. What does the Bible say? The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all those who dwell in it. And so all that we have is from God and and for God's glory. And God wants his people to handle their money in a way that shows that they believe that God's the owner of all of it and that we trust him to provide for our needs. And in the Old Testament, that meant that Israel was supposed to tithe a tenth of their income to the Lord. And in the book of Malachi, chapter three, when the people of Israel were failing to do that, what did God say they were doing? He said, you're robbing me. You're robbing me. Now, we could talk uh, about the question, is tithing still a requirement for believers under the new covenant? And and that's a a worthy question to ask. But I think you would be hard-pressed to make a persuasive case why new covenant believers should give less than old covenant believers when the standard of giving in the new covenant is no longer a percentage, it's a person. The Lord Jesus Christ. And what was the extent of Jesus' giving for us? He held nothing back. He gave his all. So we can rob God if we don't give him what is his due. So I come back to the question I asked at the beginning. When does a thief stop being a thief? And I hope you can see there's a lot more ways to steal than just the ways that can get you thrown into jail. And just because you've avoided prosecutable offenses doesn't mean you've satisfied God's requirement of abstinence from stealing. We all have hearts that have been corrupted by sin. We all have deceitful desires that cause us to try to take what doesn't belong to us or withhold from others what does belong to them. And what are some of those deceitful desires? Well, greed is in our hearts. There's this false belief that our lives consist in the abundance of our possessions. There's the pride and arrogance that seeks to look impressive in the eyes of others by appearing wealthy and prosperous. And what's going on in our hearts when all that's happening? What's really at the heart of it? We don't believe that God alone can satisfy our need for security and significance. We don't believe that he is our satisfaction. Look at what God's word says in Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. And let's read this together in unison. Let's say it together. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you or abandon you. Therefore, we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? He has said, I will never leave you. The one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the one who owns all the gold and all the mines of the world and all the silver and all the precious jewels, the one who is able and willing to give his children whatever we need, who did not withhold his own son but gave him up for us all, He himself says to us, I will satisfy you. And in Christ, we've been destined for an eternity in his presence where there is fullness of joy, and at his right hand where there are pleasures forevermore. So, because Jesus came to be with us and died for us and rose from the dead, now his spirit can come to dwell in us and we in him so that we can be satisfied with him. What a treasure! And when, that, when he becomes our chief joy and satisfaction, when our hearts are satisfied in him, it seems dirty and it seems tawdry and it seems disgusting to take from others what belongs to them in order to get some cheap satisfaction for a brief time now. So you can see this command to stop stealing It goes beyond deeper than the superficial level on the surface. It goes to our hearts. What what it's telling us is we have hearts that need to be changed, hearts that will be satisfied in God alone. I want you to notice that right here, even in this first phrase, this first command, there's, there's a hint of hope. And the hope is this. A thief can become someone who is no longer a thief. You don't have to stay that way. There's power in the gospel to change you. In fact, I think the NIV has the best translation of this verse. It says, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer. In other words, your sin doesn't need to define you. It doesn't need to be your identity. By the grace of God, you can become someone who steals no longer. You remember when Jesus was dying on the cross? Who was on either side of him? Two thieves. And one of the thieves looked at him and said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus forgave him his sin and said, today you're going to be with me in paradise. And that wasn't the only thief Jesus died for. Jesus died for millions of thieves who are going to be redeemed by him and saved and rescued. And when he saves you, He goes beyond merely forgiving you. He starts to change you. He starts turning your life in a new direction. And he fills you with purpose and dignity and meaningful service to him and to others. And that brings us to the second point this morning. It's a positive command here. What does it say? Let the thief no longer steal, but instead let him do honest work with his hands. With his own hands. This is the way the Bible always describes how people change. It's not just stop doing this, it's also start doing this. It's put off and put on. And the Holy Spirit wants to turn the attitude of our minds from one of taking in order to get what we want to one of working. He wants us to be people who work. Work is part of God's design for humanity. Isn't this a great text for Labor Day weekend? The word there for work is a word that talks about hard labor. Speaking of strenuous exertion, the kind of physical toil that makes you sweat, or the kind of mental and emotional and spiritual toil that strains your capacities to the limit. A Christian must not be afraid of hard work. It's part of God's design. We are people who need to be working hard. It's essential to who we were created to be, again, because we're in God's image. And who is God? He is a great master worker. And our work should reflect his glory. Our work should mimic his creativity. Our work should represent his reign on earth. Tim Keller writes this. I think this is a great statement. Work is so foundational to our makeup that it is one of the few things we can take in significant doses without harm. You can work hard, and it's not going to kill you. Indeed, he says, The Bible does not say we should work one day and rest six, or that work and rest should be balanced evenly, but it directs us to the opposite ratio. Leisure and pleasure are great goods, but we can take only so much of them. If you ask people in nursing homes or hospitals how they are doing, you will often hear that their main regret is that they wish they had something to do, some way to be useful to others. So work is good. It's part of God's design. And I want you to see that in the Bible, there is no division between sacred work and secular work. That's a false dichotomy that the church sometimes makes. And way back in 1949, Dorothy Sayers cleverly critiqued the way the church drives this wedge between the secular and the sacred. She wrote, The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. In other words, do your work for the glory of God. God takes pleasure in your work in his world. Your, your work in this world matters to God. It's, if you're doing it in faith as a Christian, it's actually going to endure in the new creation. There's going to be fruit that will endure. That's what we sang about this morning. Your labor is not in vain. But it's possible, isn't it, to work very hard and not be doing it in faith? It's possible to be working very hard so that you can spend all that you earn on yourself, so that you can make yourself and your own status and reputation more impressive in this world. You could read this verse, verse 28, and you could think all the Apostle Paul is doing here is affirming the American dream. Don't steal work really hard, earn a bunch of money, and live your best life now. And that's not what Paul is saying here. Someone put it like this. If self is what you're living and working for, it might keep you out of jail, but it won't keep you out of hell. What God is calling for here is something that needs a new heart, something that requires his grace to change us. We, we can be doing honest work with our own hands and be doing it all for ourselves. You don't need a renewed mind to do that. And if that's all you're doing, in God's eyes, you're still a thief. Because what are you doing? You're using the hands that he has given you and the body that he has given you, and the breath that he has given you, and the health that he has given you, and the talents that he has entrusted to you, and you're squandering all of it to live selfishly for yourself instead of to serve others sacrificially. So you need the gospel to get the kind of heart motivation Paul commands at the end of this verse, and that's our last point this morning. A motivation that only Jesus can give. Here's the motivation. Work so that you can give. Work so that you can serve. That's what he says. We are to no longer steal, do honest work with our own hands. Why? So that we can have something to share with anyone in need. This is what makes a Christian's work ethic radically different from a worldly work ethic. Christians work so that we can have something to give to others. We work as an act of grace. We want our work to be of service to others. So when does a thief stop being a thief according to the gospel? It's when you're working hard so that through your work, those who are in need can experience blessing. And doesn't that remind you of Jesus Did anyone work harder than Jesus did? And what was the object of all his labor? Not to do his own will, not to serve himself, but to do the will of his Father who sent him. And what was the will of his Father who sent him? The will of the Father was that Jesus, by finishing his work, would be able to give eternal life to all those who believe in him. And so the Son of God left the glories of heaven, all the wealth and riches that were rightfully his, and he got to work. He came down to earth. He underwent toilsome, humiliating work, humbling himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and he did it all in love. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. That's Jesus' work. He came down from heaven to be born in squalor and filth to parents who were scraping by and a carpenter's income. The longer he lived, the poorer he got. He had no home, he had no place to lay his head at night. And then he plunged himself into spiritual poverty when he became sin for us and bore the shame and the guilt and the condemnation of our sins on the cross. Jesus never took anything that didn't belong to him. Instead, he had everything, but he poured all of it out to share with those of us who were in dire need in need of the grace and salvation only he could bring. And here's what happens. When you're renewed in the spirit of your minds, and when you become a new creation, created after God's likeness, according to righteousness and purity and the truth, when, when this transformation from the gospel starts to happen in your life, what happens is that you want to become like Jesus. You no longer want to live for yourself, but for him who loved you and gave himself up. For you. you want to take your time and your talents and your treasures and use them to point others to the one who came to save the world. You want to use them to be a blessing to others. As we come to the communion this morning, I want to paraphrase what a young preacher named Robert Murray McShane spoke to his congregation in the Scottish Highlands long ago. He looked at them and he said, Some of you are praying that you might become like Christ, conformed to his image. Is that how you're praying today? Do you want to be like Jesus? If so, you must become like him in giving. I can hear some of you objecting, but my money is my own. What if Christ would have said, my blood is my own, my life is my own? then where would we have been? I can hear some of you objecting, but these poor people you are telling us we need to give to are undeserving. But Christ could have said the same thing. They are wicked rebels against my Father's law. Shall I lay down my life for them? I will give to the good angels. But no, he left the 99 and came after the one Who was lost. He gave his blood for the undeserving. Still, I can hear some of you saying, but they might abuse it. It might not work. But Christ could easily have said the same, and with far greater truth. He knew that thousands would trample his blood under their feet, and that most would despise it. Yet he gave his own blood. Oh, my dear Christians, If you want to be like Christ, give much. Give often. Give freely to the vile and the poor, to the thankless and the undeserving. Christ is glorious and happy, and you will be too. It is not your money that I want, but your happiness. Remember Jesus' own word. It is more blessed. It is more happy to give than to receive.